Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, Stuart Stevens. Stu, thanks for joining me. Great to be here, man. Thanks. So before we get to our discussion today, and we're taping on Friday evening, I just want to send a moment of thought and sadness out to the Capitol Police officer who was killed in the attack on the building today and on his counterpart who was injured. As we still think about the events of January 6th and the loss of life there, not only the officer that was killed on that day, but the two officers who have subsequently taken their lives, we cannot thank those men and women enough who protect not only the Capitol building, but all of us every day. And that we should remember Thomas Jefferson's words, that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And those officers showed that vigilance today, and we are sorry for their loss and certainly for that of their families. But thinking about the concept of thoughts and prayers, Stuart, Gallup recently reported that for the first time since 1937, when they started recording this information, church or religious service attendance by Americans has dropped below 50%. About 47% report going to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Even more striking is that about 25% of that drop has come in the last 20 years. And so just want to get your sense, one, of what you think that's about. And then secondly, do we think that this is a broader issue of the sort of atomization of society in the United States and between Americans? Is it technology? Is it politics? Is it polarization? Is it all of those things? I know you grew up in Mississippi. You probably attend a church on a regular basis. But why are folks, you know, leaving church? Why are they leaving the temple? Why are they leaving the mosque? It's interesting. You're right. When I grew up, my family had been involved in a Methodist church. And then when that church at the time refused to integrate, they moved to an Episcopal church. And I got to say, that church in the broader sense of it was one of the huge influences in my life. I was involved in the Boy Scout troop connected with the church, which was a huge influence in my life. In retrospect, it was the biggest collection of weirdos and oddballs I've ever been thrown with. And it was a focal point of my life. And it was a super positive experience for me. I think this is a trend that's not just American, of course. I mean, this is true in Europe, true in England, Scandinavia. I think there's a lot of forces at work here. I think in part, it is larger cultural secularization that we're experiencing. I think the the entire role of the church is something that's really changed in our society. Look at Donald Trump. I never thought that we would elect a president who basically considered church a place that you go every 10 years or so to marry a model. But we did. And those who were supposedly the most adamant about organized religion are the ones who supported him the most. So I think it's a trend that's only going to accelerate. I'm sure when you look at these numbers that 
the curve is more extreme at 30 and under. You know, I mean, I grew up in a, I would say, a fairly secular household. My father is Jewish. My mother is Christian of some extraction. My grandmother was Protestant. My grandfather was a Catholic. And so I went to temple as a young man, ostensibly to sit for my bar mitzvah, which I ended up not doing for a variety of reasons. You know, and so we spent the secular holidays with one half of the family and the religious holidays with the other half of the family, depending on what time of year it was or what the holiday was. I went to an Episcopal high school where I was in chapel every day, right? On Wednesdays, they did the Eucharist where you could go and take communion. I didn't. I had not been and I have not been baptized. My children were baptized in a Methodist church and we went every Sunday for most of their first five or six years and found it a great source of, I thought, community. I thought it was uplifting. I thought it was a good sense of sort of resetting on a Sunday. The pastor there at the time was a very talented orator. He really had a way of breaking down what could be complex biblical subjects into something we could reflect on in our own lives. And I always found it to be very helpful, not only in my personal life, but also in my professional life when I was coming up with ideas or how to write something or how to explain something that could be germane to individuals. And so I think it's interesting to see that. So I guess the question now is, Stuart, what replaces it? I mean, I think if you take it out of the religious context and put it in the, say, local context, most towns probably still have a Rotary Club. Most towns still probably have a Lions Club. You know, there's probably the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, those things that sort of brought locals together, right? Neighbors, maybe business partners. But now we see a situation in which, you know, look, you and I have seen each other a few times. We saw each other pretty regularly last fall, but I haven't seen you since probably election day. And I hope to see you again soon. But the truth is, is that most of us can do the things we need to do both personally and professionally without seeing any other human being. I mean, hell, I can get my groceries delivered. I, I could do everything I need to do without ever leaving my house. Now, my kids thankfully go to school, but even then, a lot of parents are still struggling with that. So is there something also in the broader economic, technological, sociological framework or environment that we're living in that just keeps people who otherwise would have been regular counterparts, folks who would have seen each other regularly, are now just not doing that? Well, it's a strange world when you can have a best friend you've never met. And I think that's really common through various social media platforms. I think this is one of these things that everything you say about it, the opposite is also true. Yes, it's dividing people more because they're not spending time together. At the same time, I think that particularly for a lot of older Americans, it has given them a sense of community and a way to connect with people to avoid an isolation that would have been more likely at certain stages in their life. I mean, Facebook now, the average age is what, like 100 or something, right? And it's mainly become this mechanism of grandparents connecting with grandkids, as far as I can tell. And I think that's a positive. It's all part of a larger trend, I think, that we don't have these gatekeepers in our society that we once had. We see it the most extreme, I think, in the media. People consume media to reinforce their opinions, not inform their opinions. And, I mean, this has sort of become a cliche now, but there is no Walter Cronkite. That moment when Walter Cronkite first issued the word quagmire in Vietnam is seen in retrospect as a turning point in American opinion on Vietnam. We don't have that now. You know, I tend to be an optimist about these things because I, I think that in the 1960s, late 1950s, in the South, church attendance was much higher, and it was basically an apartheid state. 
and people are getting murdered and tortured over race on a regular basis. So on the long-term trend here, I don't know where it goes, but I think it is more positive than negative. Just thinking about this, you know, to your point, you know, folks are self-selecting, but they now have an infinite number of people from whom to select. The irony of that, of course, is that they are now finding people most like them, personally, ideologically, especially, with whom to communicate or to reinforce, as you said, their opinions. When we were kids, again, smaller selection, you're probably still going to find the guys or friends you wanted to hang out with, but you had the group you had. There wasn't a lot else to do. And so I'm, I'm wondering how we find a way that allows for community to build in a way that is not just growing, but growing in a healthy manner. Because it's all well and good to say, well, yes, we have more people with whom we can communicate. We have ways that grandparents can communicate with grandkids that they never had before. And those are good things. But those are things that were probably going to happen anyway, right? Whether or not it was my grandmother writing me a letter because I only saw her three or four times a year or picking up the phone and calling. That level of communication has always existed in one way or another. It just doesn't have all of the bells and whistles it has now, right? All of the photos and videos and, you know, YouTube things and live streaming you can do. So I guess the question is, if the church and the synagogue and the mosque are no longer centers of community, if, you know, the business organization is not a central fixture of professional and personal life, if the Boy Scout troop or the Girl Scout troop is no longer the sense of community, if going to school which so many parents still now are contending with their kids not being in school, is not a center of community, then what is and how do we replace that? Well, look, not to embarrass you, but I think that you're a perfect example of how this is done. I mean, you and three other guys wrote an op-ed that became a community. The Lincoln Project, to me, is an extraordinary example of a community formed, and people feel a great attachment to it and a great sense of purpose. You know, as been said, you wrote an op-ed and a movement showed up. And that movement was really a community. And that's a community that's based on shared values that actually unites people of more ideological differences, certainly than a traditional party identification would have allowed. I mean, we're guys who worked in Republican Party and, you know, we're hanging out with people who supported Sanders for a common good. I think that that's going to become increasingly the norm. And to me, that's a positive. You know, when I grew up in Mississippi, there was a phrase that University of Mississippi professor coined called the Magnolia Curtain. And there was only one family in Mississippi, believe it or not, that owned most of the newspapers. They also owned the dominant television station, which was and is the only station in the history of the FCC to have its license revoked for racism. And I was one of those kids who lived in a library because it was a way to access a larger world. And that's why I ended up writing travel books as my first books, because I was just so desperate to get out there beyond that Magnolia Curtain. And now you don't have that. I mean, I think it makes it easier if you're a kid in a small town and, you know, maybe you're different than other kids that are around you for one reason or another. You can find others who are like you. And I think that's positive. So I think where we're headed is uncertain, but I don't find this disturbing. I think it's different, and it's going to take us to a, a different sense of community. But I think it's going to be more about passions and interest than geography. When I moved to New York, I literally, for the first five years I lived in Manhattan, I don't think I knew anybody well who wasn't from Mississippi. 
And it was just a sort of destiny by geography. And I wrote about this in the book that uh, I wrote about my dad. And I always tried to avoid becoming what I saw some did, which was a professional Southerner, defining yourself by your geography. And I think that that's one thing, you know, not to hearken back to 700 words we wrote that were published in various newspapers. But right before the election last year, we did write one, I think, that appeared in the Washington Post that said what we were seeing and what we believed we were a part of was a grand coalition that had decided that it was going to stand up and, you know, work against Donald Trump, ultimately defeated him. He's now a retiree on a pension in Florida, as you like to call him. But we shouldn't ignore the fact that there's a community on the, you know, on the opposing political side too, 75 million strong, at least on that one election, that came to support him. And there's probably tens of millions of Americans who still do. So we should think about this not as a binary choice or a, a three or four option choice. It's a multiple choice. And we still probably have a lot of folks who feel politically homeless. I know that, you know, my time in the independent and reform space, which started after I left the Republican Party in 2016, and I, I would like to believe continues today, was largely because I felt that same way. I grew up in a party. Everybody says, oh, the party left me. No, I left the party. Like it had become something mm -hmm. and I didn't want right. to be part of it anymore. So how does the unaffiliated, the politically homeless, how do we organize and how do we continue to march forward? Because I agree with you. I am an optimist, too, because otherwise it would be a lot easier just to fold up the tent and said, we did something great. and We're done now. But I don't think any of us believe that that's a true or b where we should be right now. I think that it is an extraordinary moment that we're in. And, you know, I just keep going back that this moment appears normal in many ways because we have a normal president, not a lunatic. But it is an extraordinary moment because one of the major parties in America doesn't believe that the 2020 election was legitimate, which means they don't believe we live in a democracy. And that's only going to accelerate. I mean, it's very difficult to imagine anyone winning a contested Republican primary in 2022 who will assert that the 2020 presidential election was legitimate. I mean, it's extraordinary. So I think that the definition of what these parties have been is changing. I think that's going to accelerate. That's sort of a natural process that has happened with parties all the time. I think the Republican Party is going to get smaller. I think it's going to get more intense until it finally begins to burn itself out, which I don't think is going to happen for a generation to bring any change. But you're going to find, I think, a broader community that is sort of old-fashioned in its values, a sort of a coalition of the decent. And I think that is going to transcend any position that we used to think were so important on taxes or health care. I mean, it's ironic because the values that many of us thought the Republican Party asserted are actually the values that, in my mind, demand that you no longer be a Republican. And that was a sense of character's destiny, personal responsibility, that situational ethics weren't really ethical. And I think all of that is confusing to people. That's probably one of the reasons Joe Biden was the perfect person to emerge at this moment. It's probably one of the reasons he did emerge, because he represented that less ideological place that most Americans would like to be. So what's interesting about that, Stuart, is that a lot of folks have said that, you know, Trump spouts or trumpets this idea that we're going to go back to a time, right? He says it, but he doesn't show it because whatever that time is, whether or not it's male-dominated society, a mostly white-dominated society. You know, things were better back then, right? The gauzy sort of rearview mirror of life. But Biden actually embodied that. 
not in the worst way, but in the best way, which is the other day my wife said, well, Joe Biden is sort of a dull president. And I said, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's the whole point. Yep. Americans didn't want another four years of endless chaos. They wanted someone who got up every day, put their suit on, walks down to the Oval Office, pets their dog, gets his briefing, does his meetings, gives his one speech a day and actually works, actually runs the government. And it's an amazing change to think about that, you know, less than 100 days ago, we had someone who was preternaturally unable to work the levers of government on behalf of the American people. And in less than 100 days, we now are weeks away, not months away, but weeks away from having 300 million Americans vaccinated against COVID. I mean, it's a truly astonishing change. And I don't know if it shows how competent Joe Biden is or the level of incompetence and what misanthropes the Trump people were. Maybe it's both. I don't know. But it's interesting to th- I, I just I was just thinking about this on the fly that Americans actually got what they wanted, which is a return to the past, to your point, right? Someone who's just fundamentally decent. Yeah, I think one of the benefits of a civil society is being bored by government. You shouldn't have to wake up every morning and wonder what mood the president's in. In Russia, that's how they live. In Venezuela, that's how they live. Same in Cuba. A modern civil society should have a government that doesn't intrude in your life on all levels. And that certainly, again, is one of the ironies, because that's what as Republicans, that's what we said, that less government was more. But less government is different than no government which is now the sort of siren song of Republicans. Yeah, but I think Trump had a very activist government. I mean, because he was constantly in your face. But this was always, to me, it's one of the things I tried to come to grips with when I wrote this book. It was all a lie. This fundamental contradiction that when Ronald Reagan would say, the scariest words in the English language are, I'm here from the federal government to help. We would all laugh. We thought it was kind of funny. And it also reflected a larger truth that we accepted as a given that less government was better. And how do you reconcile that with a group of people in the United States in which government has been and is their best hope for bettering themselves in life? And we never were able to square that. I mean, there were efforts to do it. If you go back sort of to the Jack Kemp idea, the George Bush idea of compassionate conservatism, But we never developed a coherent theory of government that convinced people that at the lower economic spectrum, that the Republican Party was their best chance. And this is why we have cultural wars now. Like McCarthy's going out and saying, you know, this has become a thing now that they've told Republicans to say that we're the, you know, blue collar working class party, except you're not. If you look at the statistics from 2020, not unusually. The more money you made, the more likely you were to vote Republican. Trump lost 100000 and under household income. The only ones that he won in the country were 100000 plus. So you have these cultural wars that attempts to drive people at the lower economic spectrum who are predominantly white to the Republican Party because there's no coherent economic policy that Republicans have been able to offer that people will buy into as a way to believe the government can play a positive role in their life. Well, and as we've seen now with what just happened in Georgia, you know, a week before last, the Georgia legislature sped through a bill that restricted many aspects of voting in the state. Governor Brian Kemp rapidly signed it behind closed doors. 
with six or seven old white dudes surrounding him as an African-American legislator banged on the door and for her trouble, she was arrested and hauled off literally in something more reminiscent of the 1950s and 1960s than the third decade of the 21st century. And then, you know, Coca-Cola and Delta, who should have come out before the bill was signed, have now come out subsequently and said, you know, we oppose this bill. The Georgia legislature, in response, promptly got rid of a bunch of tax breaks that Delta enjoyed for being, you know, housed in Georgia, which shows that it's really not about, for the Republican Party, at least in Georgia, anything about economics other than power. We'll give you your tax breaks so long as you play nicely, but if you don't play nicely, we're not going to give you your tax breaks. Now, maybe that's politics, right, at its barest and ugliest level. But it's certainly not the idea behind trying to keep a company the size of Delta Airlines in your state. And, you know, Boeing picked up and moved to Chicago. American Airlines left Dallas, I believe, for Chicago also. Nothing says Delta couldn't say, hey, you know what? Got a huge hub in Salt Lake City. We're going to move out there. And I'm sure Salt Lake City would roll out the red carpet for them. Yeah, this was a terrible moment because there can be no pretense of good faith when you rush to pass a bunch of laws that clearly would not have been passed if your side had won. I mean, just that premise negates any chance that whatever you pass is going to be accepted as anything other than partisan. And of course, when it only gets Republican votes. And it's just monumentally bad politics to do this. It looks bad, and it is bad. The goal of, well, of all political parties, but the goal of the Republican Party should win when more people vote. And, you know, I've become kind of a radical on this stuff. I would be for automatic registration for everybody when you're 18. If you got to register for the draft, you can register to vote. Everybody should be registered, yeah, automatically. And, you know, the idea that there's voter fraud is sort of like elephantitis. There is elephantitis in America, but it's not really a huge problem. Um, there, it is a national, for those people. There's it's a, a national cancer society, people. not a national elephantitis society for a reason. You know, the best study was by Loyola law professor who analyzed between 2000 and 2014, 800 million votes and found 35 cases out of 800 million of people who were voting, misrepresenting who they were. I mean, voter fraud is a felony. And the problem we have is we can't get people to vote when it's legal. And the idea that people are going to go and commit a felony to vote is the most preposterous notion. It becomes an excuse to try to pass laws that will tilt the electorate because your party, Republican Party, is unable to come to grips with changing demographics in America. And it's just a reality. You're not going to win that. You know, people say, why isn't there a third party? I think there really are three parties in America. There's a Republican Party, which is basically the party of no, and two parties inside the Democratic Party, say Biden Party and a Sanders Party. And I think the big decisions that are going to be made in America are going to be made as that tension between those two elements in the Democratic Party plays itself out. I mean, if you take national health care insurance, in 10, 15 years, are we really going to be the only Western democracy that doesn't have national health insurance? I don't think so. And what that's going to be is going to be determined by that battle inside the Democratic Party. Because Republicans are just going to say no. I mean, we've had a chance to come up with health care policies, and we've completely failed. You know, I have this funny idea that the experience that we're going through now with the pandemic and vaccination, which has been, for most people, I think, an overwhelmingly positive experience. Everyone has said, who's been vaccinated, said more organized than Swiss trains. 
regardless of their state, regardless of their age, regardless of the vaccine they received, everyone has said, when I got there, it was one of the most organized things I'd ever seen. Yeah. I got my second vaccination yesterday in Vermont. It was really kind of moving because it was this communal experience. There are a lot of volunteers there, National Guard. And it was a case of government being involved at a tremendous positive benefit to a greater good. Well, and I think the bottom line on that is as we start to bring it back to community and what we can do, you mentioned, you know, and I think we're all humbled and proud of the community that we built within the Lincoln Project. And so now, you know, we need to put that community to work, you know, in the coming days, weeks, months, and ultimately years. We've seen what happened in Georgia with, you know, voter repression legislation. We know that there are similar bills going through the Texas legislature, which adjourns May 31st. We know that the Michigan legislature, which has a narrow Republican majority, is looking to overturn what are almost certainly to be vetoes by Governor Whitmer up there of the bills they're trying to pass. We assume that something similar will happen in places like Pennsylvania and Arizona. And so now is the time for this largely, I think, optimistic, patriotic and community oriented movement to get to work in these places. We're looking forward to 2022 now where given the dynamics of history and the dynamics of redistricting, which we'll discuss here more in a nearby episode, that Democrats will be down several seats as we go into November of 2022. And what does that mean if it's a Speaker Kevin McCarthy sitting in the chair instead of a Speaker Nancy Pelosi sitting in the chair? And as we see this, not as Republicans or Democrats, but as pro-Democratic activists, for lack of a better way to put it. And I don't know that you ever thought you'd be an activist, and I certainly didn't think I'd ever be one either. These things matter. But the good news is, to your point, is that small groups of individuals become large groups of individuals, become movements, and then they change the world. You know, we saw that when we banded together with a lot of folks who were looking for something, with other groups who were looking for something, we all came together and we all changed the world. And I don't think we should ever forget that. And I don't think the folks listening should ever forget that. And so sometimes we're tired. Sometimes we're worn out. We've been through the ringer. We spent our time in the barrel. But the good news is, is that all of us are still here. All of us are still dedicated to this mission. And I believe that as we go forward here, 2021 and the things that we're able to do and the change we're able to affect and the things we're able to build will have a distinct effect on 2022. This isn't just about elections. The elections will determine how things go. But ultimately, we should never forget that we're all in this together, that we're all in this to make this a better country, whether or not it's government or not. And to your point, to create a system, hopefully, that gets government out of the way when it should be out of the way and in place when it should be in place, but ultimately to make sure that it's the content of your character and your work ethic, not your zip code, that ultimately determine your destiny. Yeah. If it was easy, anybody would do it. The reason the hard things don't get done is because they're hard. I think 2022 could be the most important off-year election of our lifetime, because if Republicans win, they clearly are going to attempt to impeach at least Vice President Harris. And if they win, it's going to be just an accelerated trend toward anti-democracy efforts that the Republican Party stands for now. It's incredibly sad to me personally and kind of heartbreaking, and I know it's shocking to many people across the country, but it's the world that we're in. And the greatest danger we face is not realizing the great danger that we're in. And those of us that work in politics, have sad lives with nothing else to do, understand that the fate of the 2022 elections may very well be decided in 2021. 
That's when candidates are recruited. That's when the issue battlefield is going to be prepared. And this is going to be razor thin. I mean, look, under our crazy electoral system, which I now just, you know, come to the conclusion it is crazy and outdated and should be abolished. If 25,000 people in America in the right precincts had changed their vote, Donald Trump would still be president. And you have to just understand it's going to be a long battle and keep fighting. And that's one of the things I've really been moved by the supporters of Lincoln Project is how much they're invested in it, how much people have given of themselves in every sense of that. It's very humbling. Well, on that note, Lincoln voters, listeners, we're looking at you. We'll be in touch soon with more work that needs to be done, more leaders that we need to recruit to help fix these things, to help protect American democracy that I think we all truly care about because it all ultimately allows us to live the lives we want to live. Stuart, where can folks find you online and what else can you tell us about what you're doing? Find me at Stuart P. Stevens on Twitter. And my life is pretty much the Lincoln Project these days. And I'm glad for that. Well, thanks for joining me again. And everyone, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And once again, everybody, thanks for joining us. And we will see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking, with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.